Okay, so today as we get started, we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 11 again. But I, wa I, want you, I want you to do this today. I, I, want to, I want to encourage you to question your faith today. Now, typically we think of that as being a bad thing. Questioning your faith, uh, uh, we, we use that phrase, oh, I question my faith, as then I, I started to doubt more. But I, what, what I mean by that, I want you to question your faith in the sense of analyzing it. I want you to examine what your faith is in. Think about what you have faith in functionally. How does that faith that you claim to have work in your life? And I want you to do that today because I think this is a great place in Scripture to do that. Uh, we're, we're, we're working here in Mark chapter 11. You know, last week I intended on preaching the remainder of Mark chapter 11, and I didn't get that far. And then this week I set out to write a sermon to get through the rest of chapter 11, and I failed again. <laughs> but I promise next week we're going to get through the rest of this chapter. But today we're just taking verses 22 through 25. And we're really looking at this contrast between what fruit, fruitless worship looks like and fruitful worship, what it looks like. That's what we're, that's what we're uh, examining today. And so there's this fruitlessness that Jesus has recently uh, come upon here in Jerusalem when he cleansed the temple. And in response to the fruitlessness that he saw in the worship in Jerusalem, he's going to teach about what fruitful worship looks like. And that's why I think it's a great time for you and I to question our faith. Are we, uh, you know, participating in fruitless worship or do we have fruitful worship? And he's going to tell us what fruitful worship is and what it looks like. So this fruitlessness that we studied last week, it taught us this. You can have the most impressive gathering in the whole world. You can have the biggest offering. You can, you can participate in the most extreme rituals and, and commit yourself to the most extreme rules and, and all of the all of that can be under the umbrella of what you consider to be worship but in reality you can have all those things and it be totally void of worship you can have all those things and it, and it can be something that God does not like that he hates and so we saw that when Jesus entered the temple, right? He arrived in Jerusalem. He's celebrating Passover with the disciples. And so he comes to Jerusalem. He has the triumphal entry from the Mount of Olives down to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he surveys what's happening there. And he's not pleased. He's not happy about it. There's no worship there. It was just man-centered nonsense. And so this whole experience that he has at the temple it, it's, it's just like the experience he had with the fig tree. You remember the fig tree last week and that poor little fig tree that Jesus was mean to, right? Well, that moment with the fig tree was summarizing the moment that he had at the temple. Remember, he sees this fig tree off in the distance. He's hungry. That fig tree has leaves. It looks very promising. There could be figs on it. There could be breakfast. And he gets over there, and, and this fig tree that looked good from afar once he got up close there wasn't any fruit whatsoever and so he curses that fig tree may no one ever eat of you again that summarizes the experience he had at the temple he sees the temple from afar this is a place of worship this is where fruitful worship experience should be taking place and then when he gets close to the temple it's just like that fig tree there's no fruit there at all there's no worship taking place there no prayer, no, no, no exercise of faith in God, no reverence for him. It was just a den of robbers. 
They had, they had turned, they had warped what was to be worship to God at the temple into this empty religious money-making scheme, and it had made Jesus furious, and so he cleansed that temple. He went around shouting, he made a whip of cords, and got those animals out of there. It didn't matter if you were buying or selling, he was smacking it out of your hands and telling you to get out of there. That's not what this place is to be used for. That's not what's supposed to happen here. And all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And so fruitless worship, again, it's something that God finds as repulsive, and Jesus curses it just like he cursed that fig tree. And so here's the thing about fruitless worship, and this is why you know, I don't want to ever be guilty of just fruitless time together as a church family. It's because it, it can look promising, it, it can look good, it can have the appearance of something that's worthwhile, but if it's not rooted in the worship that God desires of us, it will wither away. It will wither away just like that fig tree. It'll wither away just like the temple literally was destroyed and there hasn't been worship taking place there ever since. Right? So, but if you, if, if you participate in worship that's rooted in the worship that God desires in him, it's something totally different. So I, want, I just want to read verses 20 through 21 to kind of set us up. Because, I, you know, I mentioned last week we ended at kind of an awkward part of that paragraph. Um, but I, I just want to read 20 through 21 to you again. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. You know, again, I, I don't want this time together right here to be fruitless. Isn't that a terrifying thought that we could gather weekly, that we could take part in so much religious activity, and it actually all along is something that's just repulsive to God? Isn't that a terrifying thought? I don't ever want the journey to be guilty of just fruitless, empty religion. And if we want to ensure that that's not going to take place here, we need to take to heart what Jesus is going to teach us today in verses 20 through 25. He's teaching us what actual faith-filled worship looks like, how it plays out. He's saying, listen up, here's what God does desire, as opposed to what we just saw at the temple. Here's what he does desire. And it's this, it's, it's faith, it's prayer, it's forgiveness. So we're going to analyze that. And as we analyze those things, I want you to analyze your faith. Question your faith and your motives as we examine this contrast that's taking place here in Mark chapter 11. Let me just read to you. This, this, is, this is Jesus' response to everything he just saw and witnessed at the temple. Let me just read verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Not man-centered worship, God-centered worship. You know, again, at the temple, it was, hey, look how magnificent our temple is. Look how many people that are gathered here. Look how big our offering is. Look how much money has gathered here. Look how closely we follow all the customs, all the rituals, all the rules. Look how serious we are. But functionally, it was, it was wrapped up in themselves. So Jesus counters that mentality with, have faith in God. And when you read, have faith in God, isn't that just too simple of a statement to even try to take serious? Have faith in God. Oh, okay. I mean, we, we almost glance at that so quickly, and it just seems so obvious that we miss how profound it actually is. 
At first glance, it's so simple. Have faith in God. But again, stop and ask yourself. Question yourself. What is your faith in? Is it in God? Is that how your faith functions in your heart and soul? Is that what you believe in? Is that what you trust in? Is that what you hope in? Maybe ask yourself this question. When you think about your religious activity today, your religious experience today, what, what motivates it? When you think about what you participate in religiously, is it motivated by the interests of God or is it motivated by the interests of self? It's a great question to ask yourself, to really analyze and question your faith. And, and, and when you answer that, how do you know? How do you know? Are you wrapped up in the interests of God or are you wrap up, wrapped up in the interests of self? And, and how do you know? How do you make those distinctions? You know, what we're talking about is the object of your faith. When we say we claim to have faith, what we're, what we're claiming is to have faith in something or someone. What is the object of your faith? You know, when you are the object of your faith, and this is, again, this is just kind of how you can, I think, know what the object of your faith is. When you are the object of your faith, your faith is really never going to stretch you. You know, because if we are the object of our faith, if we're at the center of our faith, we don't like making ourselves uncomfortable, right? Nobody wants to actively make themselves uncomfortable. So, you know, uh, faith that is focused on self is never going to stretch us. It's never really going to convict us to a more... Uh, to a, a more righteous life. It's, it's never really going to have any lasting repentance, you know, because if you're the standard and if it's focused on you, you can always find somebody that you feel like you're doing better than, you know, so it's never really going to work out. It's never, it's never going to humble you because it's about you. You know, you're never going to do anything more than what you were already capable of if it's about you. It's going to feel stagnant. You're going to feel stuck. But faith in God is something entirely different. When God is the object of your faith, what Jesus is teaching here and what the Bible teaches is that you're a new creation. When your faith is in God, God, the God of the Bible, you are a new creation. And you are empowered to participate in a kingdom that has no limitations. All things are possible to those who believe. These are the teachings that we see from the, from the lips of Jesus and in Scripture. So, so check out what Jesus says next in 23 through 25. He's going to flesh this out. Let me just get a little more in-depth of what it feels like, what, what this faith truly is and how it plays out in our lives. And it's just, it's astounding what he says in these verses. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Here's what faith looks like. And these, these verses get a lot of air time, don't they? Here's what faith in God looks like. It's, it's a prayerful, believing heart. It's essentially two things. I just want to summarize it real quick. It's a prayerful, believing heart that knows that God can do what is impossible for man. And, and it's an obedient heart that reflects his grace and mercy into, the, into his world. 
Those, those are the two things that Jesus essentially just said. So let's break those down. Here's what real faith feels like. Here's what it looks like. It's prayer that can move mountains. Isn't that a powerful thing that Jesus just said? You can, you can request that that mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea. That's what real faith looks like, and it'll happen. Wow! What, that's mind-blowing, right? You can pray that that mountain will be taken up and thrown into the sea and believe in your heart that it's going to happen, and it'll happen. That's what faith is, believing the impossible, because nothing is impossible for God. Now, keep in mind, this is just after the temple cl cleansing. This is right after this is right after Jesus was so mad and drove people out of the temple. A lot of scholars think that this is a continuation of that discussion, that when he says this, he's, he's still within view of the temple, and he's actually pointing at the temple at this point. He's actually saying to his disciples, here's what real faith is. You can pray, and he's pointing at the temple mount, that this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and destroyed, and it will be. They think that's what Jesus is communicating to his disciples, and we know that he did curse the temple, and the temple was destroyed, and it is no longer there. And so that's, that, that is fascinating to think about, that this is more judgment. This is more Jesus putting the hammer down on what he saw in Jerusalem. And, and that may very well be part of it, but here's the main point of what he's teaching. Faith is, is expressed through expectant prayer. Is that what your prayer life feels like because faith in God is a life that is full of expectant prayer. We feel like God will respond to what we are requesting every single time. So, okay, there's some things about though the way that this is the way that this verse is often used. There's some things that should go without saying, um, but because these verses are so overly abused and misused in our culture, I think it's worth our time to just state some obvious points about this passage of scripture. Um, when, he, when he talks about prayer that can move mountains, he is speaking in hyperbole, okay? He's exaggerating to make a point. Jesus does this all the time. He's done it several times up to this point, and it's a great teaching method. It's a great teaching strategy, and you and I use it all the time. But we remember Jesus saying things like, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of this sewing needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. It's, it's speaking in hyperbole, right? You know, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Jesus exaggerates to make a point, just as you and I exaggerate to make a point. We do this all the time when we communicate. I just did it with my boys the other day. Man, Emmett and Reese were just bickering back and forth, and it was driving me nuts as a parent. I said, boys, if you don't stop fighting, I'm going to beat both of you and just turn myself into jail. <laughs> I exaggerate. It's effective, though. <laughs> right? So Jesus isn't literally encouraging us or challenging us to pray that mountains are thrown into the sea as an exercise of faith, okay? He's teaching us that prayer is asking God for that which is impossible for you. That's what faith-filled prayer is. So he, he, he's, he's teaching us that faith-filled prayers are from those who believe God answers those prayers every single time. 
we are 100% confident that when we pray, God answers our prayers. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Because God always answers our prayers, always. Now here again is a verse that we shouldn't have to qualify with common sense, but we do because, again, people can pluck this out of Scripture and, and they use it to say all sorts of wild things about what we actually believe and what the Bible teaches. So, so this teaching, it assumes some things, right, that we learn in Scripture. So just because you ask something in prayer, does it, if you believe you have received it, is, is God really going to give you whatever that request is no matter what? Well, no, it assumes that you're not going to ask for anything sinful. But you know you and I are capable of that, right? Sometimes we want that which is sinful, and sometimes we even have the audacity, or in our ignorance, we pray for that which is sinful. Well, God's not going to give us that which is sinful just because we believed we have received it. And so, you know, God's, God's not this genie that's bound by these, you know, fairy tale rules that he has to grant that wish because you, you're, you're playing by this set of rules here. No, that's ridiculous. God is perfectly righteous. And he's never going to grant you something sinful or help you sin or even tempt you to sin. And so, of course, this, this assumes that you're never going to ask for anything sinful when you pray. Can you imagine that? Lord, help me to steal money from every single person in this auditorium today. I can want that all day long and believe it in my heart and soul and squeeze real hard when I pray for it. And it's not going to happen because it's sinful. It doesn't matter how much I doubt or not. We've got to remember the whole counsel of Scripture in addition to common sense. That things like James, verses like James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, right? We, we see this taught elsewhere in Scripture. But, you know, even if you, even if you ask rightly, even if you ask with the right passions, does that mean God's going to say yes to you? Even if you ask rightly with the right passions, the right motivations, with the right sincere heart, and you believe that you have received it, is, is God going to always say yes every single time to you? Well, we're going to see a situation in Mark where it, it doesn't pan out like that. When we turn the page, uh, you know, we're going to get to this moment in which Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's Jesus pray? Are you going to say, are you going to say he didn't pray rightly? No, he prayed rightly. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. He's, he's crying out in prayer, in desperation, stressed beyond belief. Remove this cup from me. You, you got to know that Jesus was asking with the right heart and with the right motivations and with the right passions. Remove this cup from me. But then what's he say after that? Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus didn't expect God the Father to say yes to his request, even when he had the right intent. So you and I shouldn't always expect, expect God to answer our prayers 
just because we have the right motivations and the right intent, right? Because we don't always know all of the will of God. We don't know all of his will. So when we pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so if Jesus got a no as an answer to his prayer, you got to believe that we are going to get a, a few no's here and there when we pray and our fallen and brokenness when we go to prayer in God. We should still go with an expectant with an expectant heart and believing God will answer our prayers. But, you know, sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. There's different answers that are possible there. And so th these verses are often taken out of context and they're used to hurt people in our culture. And it's really frustrating. It's really frustrating. And so you have several preachers and teachers in the Word of Faith movement that you hear me harp on from time to time. You, you, you're like, man, your pastor does not like that movement. Correct. <laughs> I don't and I don't hide that because it's dangerous and it's hurtful it hurts God's people because they have this name it and claim it mentality or blab it and grab it whatever you want to call it but they teach their people they teach their people you can just flip on TV in this afternoon I guarantee you'll see it before the day's out they teach that you got to believe enough and if you believe you have received it well the reason you don't get your prayers answered is because you didn't believe that you received it you didn't exercise your faith enough, and so you didn't get the answer to your prayer. You didn't squeeze hard enough. You didn't believe enough. You don't trust God enough, so he's not answering your prayers. you got to name it and claim it. you got to declare. you got to declare it. This is what they'll say. They'll write books called Declare, right? I mean, this is explicitly taught on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and, and, I've, and, and so I, I've even met so many people, and, and was recently talking to someone who has fully embraced the Word of Faith movement, has fully embraced that teaching specifically. They, they had a, a heart condition, and it's killing them. They say, well, I've already, I've already prayed that I'm healed, and so I believe that I am healed. I'm like, well, are you? Well, the doctor says I'm not. Well, are you sure you're healed? <laughs> <laughs> No, I am, I, I'm but I'm going to play this game. I'll play this game with the doctor. He says, uh, he says my heart's failing, but that's just whatever. I'm healed. Okay, well, you see how far that gets you. you know, and uh, I don't think it's going to work out very well. You know, we, uh, we don't have to let go of reality, right? Here's the irony of that heresy, though. Here's the irony of teaching people that if they, if they believe in that way, the, the irony is when you pray like that, when, when you take that overconfidence, that arrogance, that, that uh, forceful mentality into your prayers with God, that is not powerful. That's not exercising the power of prayer. You're emptying. You're emptying prayer of its power when you take that mentality into prayer. That supposed unwavering faith, that pretend faith, it doesn't, it doesn't convince God to do anything, to say yes to your request. Because when you're putting your hope and your trust and your ability to faith really hard, what is the object of your faith? It's you. That's the irony of that heresy is they are functionally taking a verse that is supposed to give you so much hope, that is supposed to teach you to, to, to speak to God in this expectant way, in this hope-filled, inspiring way, and they're taking it and they're making it about you and they're, make, and they're, they're, they're voiding out any power that was in that prayer in the beginning. They're causing people to put faith in themselves and put up this cocky facade of ridiculous nonsense. If the object of your faith is you, it has no power. 
If the object of, of your faith is you, you're only capable of what is possible. The object of true faith is God. And then all things are possible. Because all things are possible for God, whom we have faith in. Jesus is teaching that faith in God is trusting that he hears every single one of our prayers. And it's trusting and submitting to his will, his perfect will and his perfect timing. He's going to say yes, he's going to say no, or he's going to say wait. And so, yes, all things are possible for him. So when we, when we go to God in prayer, by, take your request to God in prayer. Badger him with your prayer. That's what we're told to do in, in Scripture too. Take your, your hopes, take your request to God and fully expect him to answer them every single time and to carry out his will perfectly. That's where peace is. That's where hope is, is knowing that he's in control. That's what true faith is. But it's also like this, faith-filled prayers, they, 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 expect, they accept God's answers, answers, and faith-filled lives are those that reflect his grace and his mercy into the world. Did you notice that last part? It says, whenever you stand, he goes, he, again, he's, this is what fruit, the fruit of real faith looks like. It's prayerful, expectant prayers, but it's like this also. It's forgiveness, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you, your trespasses. So faith in God always will bear the fruit of forgiveness. God's people are forgiving people every single time. That's who they are. That's what their identity is wrapped up in. Let me say it a different way. Unforgiving people are not God's people. I don't care what you claim. I don't care what you, what's on your t-shirt. <laughs> it doesn't matter. If you're not a forgiving person, you are not one of God's people. God's people forgive because they are forgiven. 100% of the time, they are forgiving people. That's who they are. That's how they function because when you, are, when you are filled with the Spirit of God, if His Spirit is living in your life, you are a forgiving person by default. That's who He made you to be as you are a new creation in Him. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, that makes us kind of nervous, right? Because maybe everybody in here is thinking, like, oh, man, have I forgiven every single last little thing that's happened to me? Have I, have I forgiven everyone? Forgiveness is complicated. Um, we, we, we treat it like it's black and white. We, we talk about it like it's real, real easy. But forgiveness is actually fairly complex, right? When we look at in, in Scripture and, and study forgiveness, I, it would be a whole other sermon, and, and, and it would be a worthwhile sermon. It's just not this sermon. But I tell you just a few tidbits about true forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean no consequences, right? Sometimes I think we confuse that. Uh, sometimes we think we haven't forgiven someone because there's still consequences there. But there are always consequences to sin, right? Forgiveness doesn't erase consequences. So you can, you can have forgiven someone and there still be consequences there. You know, forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to be BFFs with the person who sinned against you. And I feel like I've, I've experienced several circumstances and counseled many people through this where they're like, well, I just haven't forgiven them yet. So they have to prove their forgiveness to themselves by being overly friendly and overly loving to that person and, 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 and you know, intertwining their lives together in a way that isn't necessary to prove forgiveness. So you, you don't have to do that. Um, 
because there are consequences sometimes to, you know, even though there is genuine forgiveness. And also, you can't forgive someone who doesn't want your forgiveness. There's another uh, aspect of forgiveness that we often confuse. We often say when someone has wronged us, oh, well, you know, I have forgiven them and I've moved on. Well, did they want your forgiveness? Did they ask for your forgiveness? How did you forgive them then? You know, again, we, when we think of these things through the lens of Scripture, you know, if someone doesn't want your forgiveness, if you don't want my forgiveness, how, how am I supposed to give it to you? <laughs> this is, I think this is how we're taught to think about it. And so, can, you know, forgiveness is, is, is complex, and we don't have time to go into all of those things, but in biblical for- forgiveness, with biblical forgiveness, there's always repentance. They go hand in hand, right? But we are to be forgiving people. When someone asks for our forgiveness genuinely, how could we hold it, withhold it from them? You know, there's still consequences, but how could we withhold it? Right? When we're filled with his spirit, we pursue and desire forgiveness because that's who God is. That's how he treats us. I love how J.C. Ryle puts this. He, he, in his commentary, he just said, can we overlook the injuries that we receive from time to time in this evil world? Can we pass over transgressions and pardon an offense? If not, where is our Christianity? Isn't that a great question? If you can't forgive, if you don't want to pursue forgiveness, where's your faith? That's what this is. It's forgiveness. You are forgiven. You have been redeemed. You have been shown grace. You have been shown mercy. And if we are of God who treats us this way, how could we not treat others that way? If we don't offer forgiveness, if we don't forgive, where is your faith? Show me it. Does it exist? These are the ways in which I think we should question our faith. Where is your Christianity if you don't forgive others? You know, we are forgiven because we've asked for forgiveness in prayer. And we believe we have received that because it's based on the promises of God that we have been forgiven through his son on the cross. Not because we've faithed far enough. We haven't turned faith into this work, to this action that we have to do to be saved. Our faith, the object of our faith is God, not our faith. So how could we not forgive others? Do you have faith in God today? Is that where your faith is? When you analyze your faith and how it works in your life, how you utilize this tool, this way of life, this faith, how is it playing out in your life? Is it playing out through prayer that you know is going to be answered and that you know God can intervene and do the impossible in your life? Is it playing out like that? Question your faith. Do you see those fruits? Do you see that fruit of faith in your life? When you examine your heart and you think and you're critical of yourself, do you see that prayer? Do you see this type of forgiveness naturally playing out in your life as a way of life because you identify as one of the redeemed, as one of those who are forgiven and so you forgive others? Do you see that fruit in your life or are you one of those that just harbor bitterness, you just hold on and hold on and you hang on to that hatred and you stew forever and you never want to deal with anything? Are you seeing the fruit of how biblical faith is to play out in your life? And so this is, this is why I think this is such a great place 
to examine and to question yourself and to question your faith. When we go into communion today, that is what we are to be thinking about. The object of our faith. I am forgiven because of the promises of God. I take this bread to remember I am not perfectly righteous. Jesus is the one that's perfectly righteous. And I have faith in his righteousness. And in that faith, his righteousness is imputed to me. I am perfectly justified right now before God. Not because of me. It's because of Jesus. That's the, he is the object of my faith. That juice that we drink is to remember the blood that was shed on the cross. I don't think that I've worked off my sin. I don't think that I've swayed God in any way. Tipped the scales. I, I find rest and hope and peace in the blood of Christ alone. He is the object of my faith. And as that faith that plays out in my life, it empowers me to live in a kingdom without limitations. That I am capable of things I was not capable of before. That mountains can be thrown into the sea because all things are possible with God. And that prayers can be answered. And that forgiveness can happen in my life because of him. So let's take these things into prayer today and into communion as we continue our worship together. Let's pray. Lord, again, I, I thank you for this time and, and for these lessons in the Gospel of Mark. I thank you for these teaching moments that you share with us. It's filled with so much hope. Lord, we're so thankful that you can do the impossible. And Lord, that by your grace, we can live in your kingdom and experience the impossible. We thank you, Lord, that your will plays out perfectly in our lives. Lord, we thank you for prayer that we can take all of our concerns to you and that you just show us grace in that, Lord. There are times in which we just take our wicked desires into prayer and ask you for things that we shouldn't ask for. And in grace, you tell us no. Thank you, Lord, for not giving us every desire of our heart. We would wreck this place even more. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which your timing plays out perfectly, that when you say wait, we can be patient. We have so much evidence of your perfect will playing out in Scripture in so many unique ways. And Lord, we thank you for the ways in which you say yes, that Lord, when we ask things of you, you say yes to us, Lord. Just You don't have to. We don't deserve it. You just show us mercy. Lord, you have forgiven us and we don't deserve to be forgiven. Help us to live in a way that would reflect that into this world and in a way that would change uh, the way others live and think and believe. Lord, all to your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.